You're listening to the Molehill Podcast, an audio anthology of treasured writings read aloud by the writers themselves. I'm your host, Drew Miller. Welcome by Rebecca Reynolds. Welcome to the precipice of truth. Take one step off this edge and you will either fly or you will perish. I think, though, what is most likely is that you will first perish and then you will fly. Or you can stay where you are, stuck to that flat illusion of safety where you will simply coagulate into a denser version of what has already bored you to death, bound you to death, driven you here, until you stand staring over the edge into certain loss and hope of fire. That was Rebecca Reynolds reading her poem, Welcome, which originally appeared in the Molehill, Volume 2. You'll be hearing more from her in later episodes. If at this point you're asking yourself, what is the Molehill? Or, indeed, why is the Molehill? Then I gently propose that you take a listen to our five-minute introductory episode in which I attempt answers at those questions. And, when you're finished, come right back here for Don Chaffer's reading of the Wilderness Journal. Before we continue, I would like to share a dubious fact about Don Chaffer. You may not believe me, and to be honest, I wouldn't blame you. It sounds really far-fetched, but seriously, it's true. So, one time, Don Chaffer wrestled a Muppet and lost his left arm. Fortunately, though, he's double-jointed, so he can still play guitar. Crazy, right? So anyway, about this Wilderness Journal, I first heard the Wilderness Journal sitting in church. Don was our guest preacher that day, and rather than a normal sermon, he shared this deeply touching, deeply funny account of the Exodus, written by a, let's say, scripturally fictitious character named Eli Ben Ami. The story goes that after the Exodus, which he affectionately refers to as the Great Escape, Eli decides to keep a journal logging the journey of the Israelites through the wilderness and into the promised land, peppered with details from his own personal life. Over the course of the story, you may find that Eli becomes more and more real to you. He's kind of a jokester, also a softy, and his story isn't that much different from any of ours. Enjoy. The Wilderness Journal of Eli Ben-Ami by Don Chaffer Day one. Dear Wilderness, yesterday was incredible. We were all running toward the sea, rumble of Pharaoh's chariots in our ears, thinking we're going to be slaughtered, but we're still running because getting slaughtered later is better than getting slaughtered now. Then we reach the shore and we're stuck. But Moses raises his staff overhead and guess what? The sea splits in half. Water piles up on either side with a path right through the middle. So, We start walking. Funny thing, should be super muddy, right? Nope, totally dry. It was crazy. By the time we get across, Pharaoh's army is on the seafloor right behind us, but then Moses turns around, lowers his staff, and whoosh, the Red Sea collapses on him. Whole army drowns in front of us. Sure was glad to be on Jehovah's side right then, tell you that. Last night, 
We camped on the shore. Today, people whoop and holler out of nowhere every so often. We're all thrilled to be out of Egypt. And uh, hold on, Moses is about to speak, or Aaron's about to speak for Moses. Some people say Moses stutters. Hard to believe, but anyway, gotta go. Day three, dear wilderness. So that speech Moses gave, he said, in honor of our escape from Egypt, we're going to cut yeast out of our diet for seven days, and we'll do it every year from now on to remember God's deliverance. I'm like, okay, that seems kind of weird because A, what does yeast have to do with anything? And B, I like yeast. I'm cool with it, of course, whatever Moses wants. Guy saves me and mine by splitting the sea with his staff and says, I got to lay off yeast one week a year. I'm in no questions asked because that staff business is friggin' incredible. Rachel doesn't like me saying the word friggin' and she doesn't like me saying Moses is weird. I tell her, I didn't say he was weird. I said the yeast thing was, she interrupts, because Moses is our holy leader. I'm like, I know that. I just don't get the whole no yeast thing. And besides... And let me say I realize that I just wrote I'm in, no questions asked, but sometimes Rachel can get me arguing a side of something I don't even agree with. It's ridiculous. Anyway, I say, besides, I thought our faith was all about being super honest. Not that kind of honest, she says. And also, dearest Eli, just because you don't get it doesn't mean it's weird. Well, guess what, Rachel? I'm not saying anything now. I'm writing it. And what I write in my Dear Wilderness Journal is my own business. And I'm writing that the split the sea thing was friggin' incredible because it was, and that the no yeast business is a little weird because it is. So, there. It's a few minutes later. I couldn't resist telling Rachel what I wrote and how she can't stop me. And she says, you may be right, but I tell you this, Eli Ben Ami, if we still had a couch, you'd be on it tonight. And I say, well, welcome to the wilderness, baby, (laughs) which I thought was funny. She didn't. Day nine, dear wilderness, so glad to be done with the whole no yeast week. Uh, Honestly, it wasn't as bad as I thought it'd be, but don't tell Rachel I said that. About the promised land, folks say we're two, maybe three weeks journey. Frankly, even if it winds up being four weeks away, I won't care. You know why? Milk and honey, baby. Milk and honey. (laughs) I can't wait. Day 10, Dear Wilderness. Rachel says Moses is calling our escape from Egypt the Exodus, which I said is dumb because Exodus, nobody ever uses that word. I said we should call it the great escape, or something cool like that. But she says there's no poetry to that. So I said, and I was so deadpan when I said this, it was awesome. Oh, I'm sorry. Then how about the friggin' escape, (laughs) which was hilarious, but she didn't laugh. Hey, I I never explained this whole artsy-fartsy Dear Wilderness journal, did I? Because, I mean, I'm not a big talk-to-inanimate-objects guy, or a big journal guy, for that matter. And I'm definitely not as holy as Rachel. Still, someday we'll have kids. And when they have kids, I think the grandkids will think it's cool that their grandparents were part of something so important. They'll want to know more about it. And I'll be like, bam, journal. Plus, I bet they'll laugh at the word friggin'. So take that, Grandma Rachel. Day 20. 
Dear Wilderness, here's something weird. We're off to the promised land, but you want to know how we're navigating? A pillar of cloud. This big tube of clouds moves in front of us and we follow it. So easy. Here's the weird part, though. At night, there's a pillar of fire in front of us. And while I'm sure it would keep guiding us all through the night if we were still marching, we don't do that. We camp at night, so it's not super helpful. In fact, and I'm not being ungrateful here, but it's kind of annoying. It's really bright. I keep telling Rachel, we should move our tent farther from the pillar, but she says, it's inspiring. And like my buddy Obed's always saying, Happy wife, happy life. So we camp pretty much right by the pillar. I, I hadn't slept well for almost a week until yesterday when I broke down and bought one of those eye mask visor things that blocks out light at night. Ruben sells them at his pillar of fire light blocker cart. <laughs> that guy. I make fun of him, but usually I just wish I'd have thought of it. Day 45. Dear Wilderness, we're moving pretty slow, and there's a couple things bugging me, too. First, we get this free food every morning. It's called manna, and it just appears on the ground. But after a few days, everyone complained about the lack of variety, so Jehovah sent us quail. But, I mean, not just a little quail. This is like quail with a vengeance. I've got quail coming out my nose. Second... The recent battle with the Amalekites was intense. That kid Joshua led us in battle, but it wasn't looking good until old Moses raised his staff overhead. As soon as he did that, we started winning. But then he got tired, his arms sagged, and we started losing. After two or three times of this, raising his arms, sagging, raising them again, I went over to Aaron, who I'd never spoken to in person, and said, Hey, Aaron, why don't you and a buddy go hold Moses' arms up? Till we win this thing, Aaron looks right at me and says, that's a really good idea. <laughs> so they did it and we won. And I was telling people about how it was my idea when Rachel pulled me aside and said, remember, Eli, the victory is the Lord's. I said, maybe so, but old Eli helped out a little bit, right? She rolled her eyes. Day 55, Dear Wilderness, you know the mountain everyone calls Sinai? I told Aaron it should be called something cooler like Big Top. He said, not all my ideas are good. I said, well, Sinai's dumb. I mean, I didn't say it, you know, but I thought it. Anyway, tonight at evening meal, Aaron announced that Moses is going up on Big Top to meet with Jehovah. Meet Jehovah. Man, I tell you what, However weird Moses may be, he's got some real moxie. And when Rachel's not around, I tell Jehovah privately, thanks for Moses, he's a good egg. Day 92, Dear Wilderness. Moses has been up on Big Top for, shoot, what's it been? Nearly 40 days. People are restless and they're putting heat on Aaron to make a golden calf to worship like we had back in Egypt, which is weird to me because, you know... The Great Escape and everything. Rachel's brokenhearted. She tore her clothes earlier today like someone had died, and she said the people she once knew, the people of God's glorious exodus, are dead. I said she was overreacting, but right then, one of Aaron's lackeys poked his head in the tent and collected all our gold. Man, I hope this isn't what it looks like. Uh-oh. And P.S., 
I've been helping Ruben out with the Pillar of Fire eye blocker cart. Ruben's a good dude, and it's nice to have some walking money. That said, sales are down since this golden calf thing started. Lots of people moving their tents farther from the firelight. Day 93. Dear Wilderness, Aaron melted the gold down. Word is he's asked the craftsman to make a calf idol. I feel sick to my stomach. Day 95. Dear Wilderness. Last night was the calf ceremony. Rachel didn't go, of course. She stayed in the tent and prayed, and I said I had to go work the cart. No way is anyone buying light blockers at the ceremony of the golden calf, she said. Well, I know, I answered, but also... I need to be sure people stay safe. That was a lie. At first, she was right. Ruben didn't sell light blockers last night. Past few weeks, he's been knitting these little yellow calf souvenirs. Said he wanted to cash in at the ceremony. I knew it, too, because he's had me stuffing the dumb things with camel hair for a week straight. I felt bad about making them and worse about lying to Rachel, but worse still, I was next to Reuben when he sold the first one, and I actually th- threw up. I told Reuben it was bad quail. I sat on a rock behind the cart, watching Reuben sell one after another, but then all of a sudden, Reuben tore off his robe and dove buck naked into the dance. As he did, he yelled out, Keep selling, Eli, keep selling. So I left, right? I stopped. I walked away. No. I stood there, selling calf dolls to drunk, mostly naked people all night long. Know why? Because I didn't want Reuben to think I was a prude. I sold and sold and sold. At first, the thrill of selling actually made me feel better. Then I convinced myself that though I wasn't into the ritual, other people were, and I was just helping to make their nightmare special. Gold knit calves! Special souvenir for a special night! I chanted. After a few hours, I even caught myself humming along to the old Egyptian slave driver songs. Good tunes, though, I said to myself. That's when I saw Moses. He was fresh off the mountain, and maybe being with God had made him peaceful or something, but I swear, he almost seemed to glow. He was walking toward us along the south ridge, so he couldn't yet see what was happening. He could only hear it. As he rounded the ridge, though, he recognized that tune, and an awful question came across his face. Then, the lurid scene unfolded before him. I looked, too, and suddenly it was so different. No seduction, no inspiration, just pale, sickly people, lewd dances and dissonant songs, and that golden calf encircled by fires, glittering, gaudy, impotent. This was no special night. What had I been thinking? Calf souvenirs in one hand, a bag of shekels in the other, I turned back to Moses to see him looking right at me. And worse, he had tears rolling down his cheeks, sparkling in the firelight. 
After that, it was a blur. He swelled with rage, stormed the dance, and shouting like thunder, staff overhead, he scattered the crowd like bugs. I stood there a while after everyone had gone. The bonfire flames flickered. Alone, I wheeled Reuben's dumb, squeaky cart into the darkness. By the time I reached the pillar of fire, I wish I were in flames myself. I, I threw a stuffed calf into the pillar. It was engulfed. I threw in another and another and another. In time, I wept and shouted, I'm sorry, Rachel, I'm sorry. And that's when I saw her. Rachel's head poked out of our tent. Eli, she said. And for the second time that night, I saw tears sparkle in the firelight. I stared at the ground, ashamed. By the time I could bring myself to look up again, she was gone. I don't know where she slept last night. Out in the open somewhere, I guess. I wanted to find her, to tell her. I, I never sang, and never danced. But what would it matter? She can always feel my heart beneath my words. I knew she wouldn't come back to the tent. Besides, I smelled of ceremonial incense and burned souvenirs. That's why I didn't sleep in the tent either. The stench would have gotten on everything. The bed, the blankets would have tortured poor Rachel for weeks. So uh, I walked as close to the pillar of fire as I could stand, and I lay down. I sweated, tossed, and turned all night on that hot dirt, and dreamed of a giant knitted yellow calf who chased me all the way back to the Red Sea until I dove in the water, sank to the seafloor, and saw the Egyptian army in front of me, their eyes wide open. Then the pharaoh swam toward me and pushed his head into my chest. Not, not a violent push, a gentle one. It was so strange. It almost felt familiar. I awoke to a foot pressing against my ribs over and over. Eli, wake up. Wiping the morning manna from my eyes, I saw Rachel holding out a calf souvenir. I think you dropped this, she said. Day 102. Dear Wilderness, after a full week of refusing to speak to me, Rachel apologized today. She apologized to me. She told me she'd judged me in her heart, but that doing so was proud and that pride comes before a fall. I told her she should totally write that line down because it's really, really good, and she looked at me with such sadness. Not right now, Eli, please. I was humiliated. But I accepted her apology, even though it seemed ridiculous. And, of course, I apologized, too, for how I helped tear our people in half and for the darkness of my own heart. She forgave me. Master of the universe, I've complained about the wife you gave me many times, but now I tell you I am unworthy of her. She's almost too good for me to bear. Day 152. 
Dear Wilderness, I just reread that entry from a couple months ago where I'm all lovey-dovey with Rachel. Well, update, that woman is bound to drive me crazy. When Moses came down from the mountain, he brought a whole mess of laws with him, and they are overwhelming. Now, I happen to know some families who have a little grace about the finer points. Not Rachel, boy. She says they wouldn't be laws if we weren't supposed to keep them, which is pretty hard to argue with, but come on, it's exhausting. Plus, now, once a month, she disappears for three days or so, and sure, those days are a lot more peaceful than they used to be, but between keeping house and working Reuben's cart, there's so much to do, I hardly get to enjoy the peace and quiet. Uh, Speaking of the cart business, it's going really well. See, Moses and the elders are choosing priests, and the craftsmen are building a tabernacle. I argued for God tent. No one listened. Needless to say, people are jazzed, and the more excited they get about faith, the closer to the pillar of fire they want to camp. So I told Reuben, this is an opportunity. We need an ad campaign. He agreed. He even had Ben Yaman make a banner with the slogan I came up with. More faith doesn't have to mean less sleep. Still, whenever I point out how sales have improved, he says the same line. Maybe so, Eli, but I know I'm wasting half my money on marketing. I just don't know which half. And then he laughs like he's the first person ever to say that. Hilarious, Reuben. Hilarious. Day 168. Dear Wilderness. So, um, Reuben was called to the priesthood today by the elders. And you know what he did? He gave me his cart. He said, you've been with me. You're a faithful friend, a faithful worker. It's yours. I was touched, but when I started this entry, I saw how I made fun of his marketing joke last time, and I feel bad. Reuben really is a funny guy most of the time. He'll make a great priest for that very reason. Everyone knows the priests could do with a little better sense of humor. Also, the cart has really expanded. Reuben was about to move us into a tent, in fact. We carry a wide variety of goods now. Mana jars, quail skewers, all the general stuff people need, which is why Reuben calls it a general store. I think that is such a dumb name for it. So, no disrespect to Reuben, I'm getting Ben Yaman to make a new banner the moment we transfer ownership. It'll say, the stuff you need store. Rachel says it's a clumsy name, that General Store has more poetry to it. Surprise, surprise. Always with the poetry business. But you know what I said back to her? I said, maybe you're right, Rachel, but who came up with more faith doesn't have to mean less sleep, huh? And then she smiled her long, slow smile and said, touche, Eli Ben-Ami, touche. I was so surprised I got flustered and said, darn friggin' right. I immediately wished I hadn't. Archaeologists note, end of scroll one. Because scroll two begins over 14 years later, it is almost certain that there are several interstitial scrolls as yet undiscovered. Day 5320. Dear Wilderness, this morning Rachel was crying. I asked her why. She said we have no children. I said, yeah, I noticed. I don't know why I said that, except that... After years of barrenness, we're both brokenhearted about it, so much so that neither has ever had the courage to even mention it. But as soon as I said it, Rachel busted out crying. I'm such a jerk. 
I apologized. But she said, what is your insult compared to my barrenness and the judgment of Jehovah against me? Whoa, I said, hold on. God's judging you? If God's judged anyone, if he's made anyone barren around here, it's me. She snapped back, men can't be barren. Uh, I mean, sure, I said, everyone knows that. But still, every time I've thought about this, whether one of us is being judged, I just always figured it had to be me. There's no way it's you. That's when she stood up and hugged me as tight as she ever has and said she loved me. I'm glad I helped her. I hate to see her sad. Day 5,480. Dear Wilderness, I'm worried about Moses. He seems resigned. When Aaron speaks for him these days, which is less than ever, he rarely mentions the promised land anymore. And when he does, he says, when you get to the promised land, not when we get to the promised land. Like he doesn't think he'll make it. It's sad. Honestly, sometimes I don't think any of our generation should make it. Except Rachel, of course, and probably Moses. But if I were Jehovah, I'd want a new crop of Israelites for the promised land. Not a bunch of old idol worshipers from Egypt. What if we get there and get all fat and lazy and go right back to idolatry? What kind of promised land would that be? Yeah. Better to keep us on our toes. Keep the promise, but hold back on the land. Then maybe our children can have the blessing we were too crooked to taste. One good thing, though, lately Moses has had Joshua hanging around him a lot. Old man Noon's boy, the kid that led us into battle against the Amalekites years back. Frankly, I'm relieved to see Moses passing things on. God forbid he die and all his wisdom die with him. Actually, weird old Moses has kind of become precious to us. I made the mistake of saying that very sentence to Rachel yesterday, and she said, Us, Eli, or has Moses become precious to you? Don't push it, lady, is what I said back to her. Otherwise, things are good. Stuff you need store is going strong, though people still call it the general store, even though it says stuff you need store on the stupid sign, and I've been correcting them for 15 years straight. Archaeologists note, Scroll 2 ends here due to a tear. The remainder of it has not been found. The third and final scroll bears only one entry, which is believed to be Ben-Ami's last before he died. Among other scrolls from this dig was a scroll of the names of the Exodus generation and their children. A postscript note in it reads, Upon the death of Reuben Cohen, priest of the tabernacle, founder of the general store, and the death of his wife, Marav, with no surviving siblings, their only child, Ephraim, age 11, was given into the care of the childless couple, Eli and Rachel Ben-Ami, who adopted him as their own. Day 14,515. Dear Wilderness, I've been rereading this journal, Wilderness, and what a time we've had these past 40 years. My dear Rachel gave up her ghost to Jehovah a month ago today. She was rich in years, I cannot complain, though my heart is heavy still. All of us from the great escape have now departed. Only Moses and I remain, and neither of us is long for this world, I think. So, it will be as I suspected. Not we, but our children and our children's children will set foot in the promised land 
and Joshua, not Moses, will lead them across. Joshua, who has become a man of wisdom and strength under Moses' instruction all these years. Still, I find myself wondering, what was my story and the story of my generation? Are we the people God rescued from slavery only to perish here in your bosom after all? Are we recipients of a promise not exactly broken, but also not exactly fulfilled? I think perhaps so. And maybe I should repent of such thoughts, or at least despair at them. But I feel so little despair now, and the slow weariness of my days is less like sadness than it is like beauty. In the end, wilderness, you and I have shared more life than I should have been able to contain, and our story is more filled with wonderful things and glorious people than with trials and regrets. It's a story of stars that blossom in your skies by night, of manna that blankets your sands by morning, and of a goodness that comes to us not despite our fragility, but because of it. Ours is a story of old Reuben, who dove naked into the dance on the night of the golden calf, but who Jehovah called to the priesthood anyway. Reuben, everyone's favorite. The Joker Priest, they called him, because of his jokes, yes, but also because whenever he saw someone swallowed in shame, he said, Perhaps Jehovah was joking when he wrote the law you broke. The shamed one's jaw would slack, and then with twinkling eyes, Reuben added, Okay, maybe not, but surely your shame gives him no delight, so perhaps the shame is the joke here, and you would do better to laugh it off and trust the master of the universe to love every soul he creates. And ours, Wilderness, is a story of the stuff you need store, of how you sent me souls who often didn't need any stuff, really, just someone to talk to. And I was glad for it. Loneliness, after all, is only a whisper away from evil. And you and I have eased many troubled hearts together. You with your breathtaking sands and your oceans of midnight stars. Me with, well, a few well-placed words, I hope. Even if they were often bad puns. Still, who knows what evil we may have quelled through our company. And ours is the story that first night of the great escape when I said friggin' and Rachel threatened if we still had a couch. I reread that entry this week and you know what? We never had a couch in Egypt. We were slaves. Rachel was making a joke. One that took me 40 years to get. And ours is the story of our sweet grandson, Manny, Ephraim's youngest, who came to me yesterday. I know, wilderness, Rachel would not have me steal poetry from the boy's name by calling him Manny. Manasseh is his given name, of course, which does have a certain poetry to it, I can admit that. But as I used to tell Rachel, is it so bad that a man might excel more at salesmanship than poetry? Whenever I said that, she gave me that long, slow smile of hers, the one I loved so much. Manny asked me if I missed Grandma Rachel, and I said, yes, very much. But you two argued so much, he said. Yes, but we argued because we both loved having the other to argue with, I said. He didn't understand. I didn't explain. 
Manny, you know what I miss most about your grandmother, I asked. He shook his head no. Her goodness, I said. I never knew how much of my life's goodness came from her until after she was gone. Day after day, year after year. A man can take such a thing for granted, Manny. Like the manna that falls from heaven every night while we sleep and fills us every morning when we wake. That's when Manny perked up. He remembered something he'd been meaning to ask me. Grandpa, does manna taste more like leeks or onions? Because Baruch said at recess that manna tastes like leeks, and I said there's no way you've tasted leeks. Right, Grandpa? I laughed and thought, Rachel, this one's more my salesmanship than your poetry. Then I answered him, You're right, Manny. No child of your generation has tasted leeks or onions. They don't grow in the wilderness. I tasted them in Egypt, though, and I can tell you, manna tastes like neither. At which point, Manny hollered out, I knew it! Baruch totally owes me a shekel! (laughs) Yes, this has been a good story, wilderness. Whenever I fear otherwise, when I worry about the meaning of 40 years of wandering, I have only to think of this boy, Manny, or of his father, Ephraim, the unexpected son Jehovah sent to a barren man and his fruitful wife, a boy whose laughs filled my heart to bursting more times than I can count, and who brought such joy to Rachel I found her crying sometimes. But when I asked what's wrong, she said, Nothing, Eli, nothing at all. I'm a woman with a grateful heart, my love. My tears are for the joy of our family. In time, I saw Jehovah in all of it. Rachel might add, not the jokes, though, Eli. God is holy. He doesn't tell jokes. Of course, that would only have been her telling another one that takes me 40 years to get. Still, if I could answer her now, I'd play along and say, Rachel, dear, if Jehovah can forgive Reuben the idolater and make him into Reuben the joker priest, upholder of the downcast, and if he can make me a barren man with a foolish heart into husband of Rachel the Holy, father of Ephraim the giggling gift, grandfather of Manny the boy salesman, then I defy you to tell me Jehovah has no jokes to tell. Am I not a man greatly to be envied, wilderness? Have I not already set my blessed foot in the promised land? And as Jehovah sweeps across your desolate stretches of sand, does he not also sweep across the desolate stretches of our hearts? I am, I have, and he does. So I say, master of the universe, I get it, I get it. All is joy, all is funny, and if I may, I have a joke to tell you, too. I heard Manny tell it to Rachel one day. He said, knock, knock. She said, who's there? And he leapt into her arms, shouting, it's me, Grandma, you know me. (laughs) Well... Wilderness, this is likely my last writing to you. My eyes are dim and my body tired, but rest assured, when I cross my Jordan River and I reach my promised land, I will leap into the arms of the Almighty and shout, It's me, Lord. You know me. I hope he catches me. I suspect he will.
That was Don Chaffer reading The Wilderness Journal of Eli Ben-Ami, originally found in the Mole Hill Volume 5. If you're crying in your car right now, please know that I also cried in my car when I listened to Don Chaffer read The Wilderness Journal. We're coming to the end of this first episode of the Mole Hill Podcast, but before we wrap things up entirely, I'd like to introduce to you a very special segment of the show. So, get ready for our first ever edition of Words of Befuddlement. You guys... Really going for it, aren't you? This is turning into a real game show. I've always wanted to host a game show. Okay, so here are the rules to words of befuddlement. It's basically like dictionary, if you've ever played that, except the words we'll be using here are, well, befuddling. So don't go looking for them in the dictionary. You won't find them there. Unless the dictionary you're looking at is Pete Peterson's exclusive dictionary for the grammatically unhindered. I'll read a word here at the end of the episode, spell it for you, tell you what part of speech it is, and then between now and next week, I'll invite you to send in your own definition of this word, whatever you feel like it should mean. You can send your definition in an email to drew at rabbitroom.com, and at the end of next week's episode, I'll share some of the definitions I received before revealing the true definition as established by the notorious Pete Peterson. Make sense? Okay, without further ado, here is this week's inaugural word of befuddlement. Pleath. P. L-E-E-T-H-E. It's a verb. Pleathe. All right. Think on that one and send your definition to drew at rabbitroom.com. I promise I'll read all of the definitions. That's it for episode one of the Molehill Podcast. Tune in next week for more poetry, stories, and shenanigans. Special thanks to Rebecca Reynolds, Don Chaffer, and Zach and Maggie. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. To learn more, visit rabbitroom.com and to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. See you next week. 